The voice of reason. The voice of alarm. The voice of stats. The voice of scouts. The voice of Kool-Aid. The voice of dismay. The voice of Devo. What in the world has happened the last two weeks? It's Devo, and I am extremely glad that you're along for another edition of your dish on Clubhouse Conversation, where I've returned from the nine-game Royals West Coast road trip with the Royals and thoroughly enjoyed their 7-2 and two run followed by two out of three from the Red Sox. How about those Royals? Let's give them a round of applause right now. They have made this summer very interesting again here in KC. So the Royals have now won 9 of 12, or if you want to look at it, 9 of 11, that's fine. Or if you want to look at it, 8 of 10, that's fine. Any way you look at it, the Royals are in fuego right now and have done exactly what we talked about before this road trip on our very last dish here on Clubhouse Conversation. And again, I apologize for it being so long, but I did give you warning that I'd be gone for a couple weeks as I was on that voyage and didn't have my home studio with me to record. But let's talk about this. Before we left, we said six and three or bust. Because at that time, six and three would have brought the Royals home at four games under 500. That was the goal. That was the bare minimum, I should say. That was the basement was six and three. You had to go six and three facing two last place teams and another team that was sitting at 500, right? And technically I know the Padres and Giants weren't both in last because they're in the same division, but you get the point. Both of them were awful and continue to be awful. So the Royals essentially beat two last place teams easily as they took four out of five against the Padres and Giants and then took three out of four against a actually fairly impressive Angels team considering they don't have Mike Trout and considering they don't have much of the starting rotation. It's a team that has really overachieved, especially since Mike Trout went out with his hand injury. Should be back here in three to four more weeks. So what the Royals did on that trip was amazing going seven and two. Six and three was the basement. And seven and two, I guess, would have been gun to my head, the realistic goal. If you said, what's a realistic goal? Seven and two would have been what I said. The Royals did that. And it was fun. And we said the Royals had to go at least 6-3 and three for a couple of reasons. Number one, the Royals had to be back above 500 going into the first week of July. Because you've got two things right now for this bunch of Royals players. Obviously, for the Royals to make another postseason run, which is the goal this year, with this core group of guys, for that to happen, the Royals have got to keep this team together as the A, right? You can't be trading Moustakas. You can't be trading Kane. You can't be trading Vargas. You can't be trading Hosmer. Even to a smaller degree, you can't be trading useful pieces like Mike Miner or Alcides Escobar. But in order for the Royals to keep those guys together and make another run, they would have to, by early July, get slightly above 500. We said that going into the road trip. So the Royals are playing two different things right now, two different pushes. They've got to make two pushes due to their miserable April and disappointing for a good portion of May. So the Royals have to get slightly above 500 going into the first week of July. And to get there, you had to come home at least four games under 500. Obviously, the Royals came home two games under 500. So they won up that. They came home two games under 500. 
And, of course, after two out of three against Boston, they're now one game under 500. But, you know, to make that first push right now is so important to keep this team together. Because if this team is going to make the postseason, obviously you can't make moves. So we've gone over that. That's the A. You had to make that first push, which they've done. And now they can't crap the bet, obviously. They're going to have to continue to play, at the very least, 500 baseball for the next few weeks. At the very least. Very least. That's the basement. They're going to have to be at least a 500 team in the next two or three weeks to consider keeping this group together. So they're not out of the woods yet, but they made that first push. And, of course, the second push is that this team gets to July 31st in contention, and then they make that last final push to try to oust the Cleveland Indians and the Minnesota Twins, possibly even the Detroit Tigers, win the division and or somehow sneak in and get that second wild card. You have to assume either the Yankees or Red Sox will get the first wild card. So you're competing with teams like the Angels, like the Rangers, possibly Baltimore, Toronto, or Tampa, possibly the Twins or Tigers. There's so many teams fighting for that second wild card. It's ridiculous right now. But let's go back to this nine of the last 11 for the Royals. I didn't honestly expect nine of 11. I knew it was possible. Of course, it's possible when you've got an experienced, highly talented, and hungry and motivated core, as the Royals have. A team that's been there before, a team that consistently defies the odds, right? When we go back and look at this group of guys 10 years from now, 15 years from now, 30 years from now, 50 years from now, Lord willing, if we're still alive. We'll look back and somebody will say, what do you remember about those teams? And you'll say, they were resilient. They defied the odds. You could never count them out. You think back to that wild card game against Oakland. Down four in the eighth, coming back against John Lester when you had under a 1% chance in winning that game. You think back to game four in Houston, pretty much the exact same Scenario on the road this time, though. You come back and win that, then you have Johnny Cueto pitch the game of his life in game five and advance you. I mean, you go back and, and look at this team. Those are just two of the prime examples. You'll even remember games like the one against Chicago when the Royals overcame seven runs in the ninth inning last year. You'll remember that kind of stuff. And, and hopefully you'll remember this year's team coming back from the complete ashes and making the postseason. So no matter what, you're going to look back at this bunch and say, man, they were just always resilient. They always played the best when their backs were against the wall. It was almost like they're just toying with you, trying to get in the worst possible situation because they're trying to keep psychologists and psychiatrists open in KC, right? Driving fans mad, (laughs) right? You go from wanting Ned Yost fired in 2014 to the World Series, from wanting him fired for bringing in your Donovan Ventura in the wild card game in the seventh inning to anointing him in the Royals Hall of Fame, and he's now the all-time winningest Royals manager. It's insane, right? So that's, I guess, something we shouldn't be surprised about that this team rattles off 9 of 11. But the Royals did that by doing what good teams do. They beat the teams in the schedule, A, but B, they beat the bad teams. Two of three now when you come home against the Red Sox. And that, to me, is a real exclamation point. Right, because it was kind of a nice, cute story. Oh, the Royals had a seven and two road trip. You know, people said, but they were playing the Padres, they were playing the Giants, and they were playing the Angels. Three teams that will not be in the postseason, most likely. Right, but the Royals then come back and take it to the Red Sox in two out of three. And maybe take it's not the right word. They didn't dominate the series or anything. But the fact that you face Chris Sale in this series and a much improved Drew Pomeranz over the last month. And you were able to take two out of three from a 
postseason Boston team. Very impressive. Very, very, very impressive. And how about today? The Royals overcome that 4-2 deficit after Salvi had the awesome at bat. The Grand Slam. Nothing but fastballs to him. Who knows what they were smoking. But I digress. Boston was nearly 30-0 going into that eighth inning. Perfect this year. It won almost 30 games in a row this year when leading after seven innings. And the Royals do what they did the last couple of years. They came from behind. They defied the odds. You thought maybe after the Royals had a few guys on base in the seventh inning and Whit Merrifield at the extremely hard you know, line drive to Mookie Betts and right, bad hitting luck, you thought maybe it's not the Royals' day. But then the Royals come right back in the eighth, calmly win the game. They've now won two or three. They go into an off day tomorrow, basically have two full days off, which is nice. You get out of the ballpark about 5 o'clock tonight and don't have to go back till about 3 o'clock on Friday. So the Royals have a nice 48-hour window to get rested up, followed by an off day coming up on Monday, if I'm not mistaken. So nice job by the Royals and a good chance for them to really get their pitching rested up. So they should be nice and fresh with hopefully a sold-out crowd on Friday night. But why has this happened? Why have the Royals been playing so much better the last two weeks? Really longer than that. They've been playing better for about a month now. But the last couple of weeks in particular. To me, the key cog has been Lorenzo Kane. His home run binge. A guy that you always thought could and would hit 15, 20, maybe, maybe even 21 or 22 home runs, depending on the park he played in. Imagine Lorenzo Kane playing at Camden Yards. Or, you know, Coors Field, obviously. But, you know, Camden Yards or Milwaukee or some of these hitter paradise parks out there. Couldn't you see him hitting 20 to 25 home runs? So you knew the power's in there, but not this kind of binge. I mean, we all remember the three-home run game at Yankee Stadium last year. Another good park would fit him well. And hopefully he does not play in any of those parks because hopefully he'll retire a Royal and sign a nice three-, four-year contract after this year. I doubt that happens, but we can all pretend right now. We're drinking the Royal Kool-Aid right now, right? But he single-handedly won game two in Anaheim. Drove in all, what, three runs in that game. And he, you could argue he single-handedly with a double dong in San Diego won in that game. It just feels like when Kane gets going, the lineup gets going. So it's so nice to see Lorenzo Kane just absolutely mashing the baseball. I believe in that road trip, he had a 78% hard contact rate. He was just absolutely murdering the baseball during the West Coast voyage, and it seemed to really ignite KC's offense. But, man, so many highlights during that road trip. It was it was very cool, by the way, being along on that trip. Most notable memory was not a good one as I got sick right outside of AT&T Park in San Francisco. That was not a fun situation, but what a neat park that was. Love San Francisco. Even Anaheim is a very underrated park. I thought Anaheim was a lot nicer than a lot of people give it credit for. I mean, it's a basically a nicer version of, U, of U.S. Sailor Field or whatever the hell that ballpark is called now. They have some weird name for it in Chicago. I forget what it's called now. But it's a better version of that. Much better air, you know, area of town. Uh, better well-kept. But they're kind of similar parks in a way. And it reminded me a bit of Kansas City, the same designers that did Anaheim did KC, so that would make sense. But you go back to that trip, how about the moose splash in San Francisco and the double dongs from Kane and all those home runs in San Diego. I thought that was a pitcher's park and tough to hit home runs in. I guess not. Alex, a home run, a double, and a single, nearly the cycle in Anaheim. How about Matt Strom winning his first big league start last Thursday night in Anaheim, going through those five innings? And by the way, how was Danny Espinosa's home run ever considered fair? What were the umpires thinking? That ball was a good four feet foul. You could tell 
anywhere in the park. I don't know how they missed that call. Anyway, I digress. Luckily, it was rolled a foul ball. Strom ends up getting out of that inning and getting himself his first win as a starter in his first start. So pretty cool there. So lots going on good with the Royals right now. And if you look back and listen back, I was as, as optimistic as anyone in the world about the Royals early on this year. Before the season, back in whatever it was, early February, late January, the day the Royals signed both Hamill and Wood, I penned a tweet to the top of my Twitter, at Royals Clubhouse, and said this will be the day that you look back on when the Royals win the 2017 AL Central. In our season preview, I had the Royals winning the AL Central, as did Jake Lutz with me as well right here at clubhouseconversation.com. I was so sure about the Royals that I threw down a $500 bet on the over of 77 and a half wins in Vegas. And I also threw down 500 bucks on the Royals winning the AL Central at 18 to 1 to pay $9,500 that the Royals win the AL Central this year. That's how sure I was about the Royals winning the AL Central. And I thought that, uh, for the reasons I've talked about many times here, the fact that they'd been to, and the only team that can say they've been to, two of the last three World Series, a team that was healthy again. A team that was motivated after losing Ace Ventura. A team that was playing one last time together, playing for contracts. And most of all, a very overrated Cleveland Indians ball club. I said that coming into the year, and everyone laughed at me. And I stuck with that. I did. Until mid-May, when I announced the Royals were now out of the division race, but still in the wildcard race. So I unpinned the tweet, and I said I was wrong about the Royals winning the Central. But I still think they can make the wild card. Well... I'll admit, I thought Cleveland would be bad this year, but maybe not quite this bad. Although the Indians are playing much better right now, only about a game off the Royals' pace, unfortunately, the last couple of weeks. So the Royals, a game back of the wild card, three and a half back at Cleveland, both are very much in play. I was wrong. I I jumped ship a little bit too early. I shouldn't have, damn it, because I was on top of this. I was the first one and the only one declaring the Royals to win the division, up even until mid-May. (laughs) <laughs> Who saw this coming? First of all, not only the Royals turning it around like this, which again, why would I ever or you ever think that the Royals wouldn't magically do this? Because they always do this. This bunch always does this, right? We just talked about that earlier. But who thought that Cleveland would stay that bad until the last 10 to 14 days? I didn't. So uh, my apology, I may be prematurely jumping ship. I don't think it was that early to jump ship. I think I was actually uh, the most optimistic and then hung on probably a week or two too long, honestly of the Royals winning the Central at that point with the data we had at that point. But I'm happy to say that I was halfway right and halfway wrong so far. And hopefully the Royals will continue to win here and win me a lot of money, A, but make me eat crow for saying the division's over, B. Now, the Royals are two of three away this weekend, and we're going to preview that here in a second, the the three-game set against the Blue Jays. But they're two of three away from being back to 500. Literally, two of three will get the Royals to 500. And that gives them, by July 1st, the chance they need to be two or three games over 500. And that's what they need to be. Two or three over 500 come July 1st, six, seven, eight games over 500 by the end of July. That's where you've got to be. And at that point, hopefully we'll be able to do a dish here where we talk about what the Royals may add. That would be a, a completely 180 from what we talked about a couple of weeks ago when we started talking about the most likely four guys to be traded. What if the Royals all of a sudden start adding guys? Again, they won't add much this year because they can't afford to give up too much more. If you're keeping your guys, you're already kind of mortgaging your future by just taking draft picks for Kane, Hosmer, and Moustakis, possibly Vargas, if those four 
happen to get big deals over $50 million in free agency, you would get comp picks. So you risk losing some guys you could get back and trade by keeping those guys. Therefore, you can't afford to really give up much more on top of that. So what the Royals have now is probably what they get, but it could be enough. You get back Danny Duffy two, three weeks from now. Hopefully Nate Carnes comes back in August. God forbid, maybe Kyle Zimmer is healthy out of the bullpen. Maybe Josh Stomont comes up as a Brandon Finnegan type or a Matt Strom type last year and has a, a second-half impact. I mean, you've got some tools. Maybe Jorge Soler comes up and is a, a big upgrade over Brandon Moss as he continues to mash the baseball down at Omaha, does Soler. So, I mean, you've got some pieces. God forbid something happened to Witt or Escobar. Perhaps Mondesi can come up and perform. He's been hitting the ball very hard down there. You've got Ryan O'Hearn. So, I mean, you've got some guys within, and the Royals, if they're in it, will be able to go get a number five starter or, you know, a bullpen arm, a couple small pieces. Like your Josh Willingham type trades they made back in 2014, your Jason Nix, those kind of guys. Not, not guys that are going to win your World Series, but guys that could. Well, I guess they could, in theory. Those guys could help you win maybe one game in the postseason. Maybe they could help you win a World Series. Anyway, the Royals two or three away from being at 500 by the end of the weekend. And let's look at this Toronto series. When I was doing the prep here, the research on Toronto, it's pretty remarkable how identical they are to the Royals. First of all, record-wise, Royals 34 and 35. Blue Jays 34 and 36. So just a half game behind KC are the Blue Jays at 34 and 36. So the records are essentially identical. Then you look at runs scored as a team. The Blue Jays, 26th in runs. The Royals, 27th in runs. Toronto has scored 299. The Royals, 276. So you're, you're next to each other in runs scored. But wait. There's more. You look at Team ERA. The Royals are 14th at 4.26. The Blue Jays are 15th at 4.28. So you've got teams within a half game of each other, and you've got teams next to each other in run scored in Team ERA. Pretty remarkable how similar these teams are to each other, at least if you look at them that way, by the numbers. And even to a degree, the way they play. Now, Toronto is healthier now as they've got Josh Donaldson back in the lineup to go along with Joey Bats, Jose Bautista, who got out to an absolutely miserable start, has started to hit the ball a little bit more and driving in runs. Having Donaldson hitting in front of him is going to help out a lot. Kevin Pillar has been a nice surprise for the Blue Jays leading off. Justin Smoke has been doing just that to the baseball, smoking it. Of course, our old good friend, Kendrys Morales, will be coming back to KC. Hopefully he gets a nice standing O. He's a Blue Jay, and you've got Tulowitzki and Martin and Carrera, Goins. It's a nice team. It's a nice lineup. Nothing I'm horribly scared of, especially in this ballpark. Against KC. In this series, the Royals will see what I would call mediocre starting pitching. And that's not a diss. That's just saying they're going to be facing mediocre guys for Toronto. We start off with game one. Jay Happ, the lefty. Jake Junis, the righty. Happ is 2-4 and four with a 4.26. Junis, 2-1 and one with a 5.56. Now, you look at Happ. When he first came out the DL, he was getting dinged around pretty good. But the last two starts, he's allowed just three runs in 12 innings. And struck out 17. So 17 Ks in 12 and two-thirds obviously will play in any park there. Missing bats. That's a good sign for Hap. If you look at some of the Royals' lifetime against him, maybe time to get Brandon Moss back in the lineup. I don't think it'll happen, as the Royals seem to be leaning towards getting Chesler Cuthbert in there in recent days. A couple of starts against right-handers. 
And with knowing that Ned Yost likes to give Salvador Perez a start at DH every 10 days or so, and knowing the way Jorge Soler is hitting the baseball down in Omaha, you got to think Brandon Moss is starting to say, uh-oh, I better hit here pretty soon or I'm going to be buried on this bench. They're not going to DFA him. Stop. Don't ask that. They're not going to DFA him. He's signed through next year. He'll be here through at least opening day next year. Not saying that at all. I'm just saying his times as a starter appear to possibly be in jeopardy. But anyway, the point, the point I'm bringing him up, he is 7 for 13 lifetime against Hap, who's a lefty, which doesn't make a lot of sense. But Moss has been actually hitting lefties a lot better this year than you'd think if you look it up. Stats are pretty remarkable. Speaking of left on left, Gordo, 5 for 11 against Hap. Kane, 4 out of 6. So there's three guys who have hit him pretty well. Now, one other note about Hap, 4-2-6 ERA on the year. XFIP thinks he should be better at 3-1-1. So half a guy with some positive regression probably coming. A guy that the Royals realistically are hoping to get three to four runs and six plus, six plus innings off of. You hope to get three to four runs off of him, a couple off the pin, and win like a 6-4, 6-5 type of game in this one with Junis going. Now, speaking of Jake, he has a 5-5-6 ERA, should be 5-9-9. So he is what he is. And he got hit pretty hard, obviously, in that game in Anaheim. He struggled recently overall. His last 16 innings is allowed 12 runs. So this could be uh, potentially his last start for a while if he gets roughed up, I would think. Maybe one more after that. You know, Duffy's not quite ready, but there's some other possibilities the Royals could do. I'm actually semi-surprised they didn't skip him this time with a couple off days coming up. And maybe they still will shuffle it. I don't, I don't know. I doubt it. But it's possible they could skip him here. It wouldn't be a horrible idea. With an off day coming up tomorrow and then one on Monday, you could really skip this slot in the rotation and move guys up. But we'll see if they do that. Second game, you've got Marco Estrada, Jason Vargas. Now, Estrada is striking out guys like never before this season, but regression has caught up with him, as XFIP said it would. That's why I love this stat so much. Estrada, 4-5 and five with a 4.98. Vargas, 10-3 and three with a 2.27. Now, Estrada has given up six runs or more in three of his last four starts. So when I say mediocre pitching and you hear that Marco Estrada is in it, you might say, well, Dave, oh, he's like a, a number 2-3, legit number 2-3. And I would respond, no, he's more like a legit 3-4. So he really is more like a mediocre starter or a slightly above average MLB starter at this time of his career. Really turned it on last year for Toronto and was, you know, at the end of May was something like, yeah, like a 3-2 ERA or something like that at the end of May. So he's gone up about over a run and a half the last few starts here. Now the Royals have hit him. A pretty decent lifetime. Eric Hosmer is 4 out of 5 against Estrada. Although Mike Moustak is 0 for 7. But getting back to Estrada and my good old friend XFIP, the 498 says he should be at 403. So some slight good pos, you know, po- uh, po- po- positive regression as I stutter there. What the hell was that? Been a professional radio guy for 20 years. I've never stuttered like that before. But Estrada, 4-5 and five with the 4-9-8. So we'll see what happens there. Now, Vargas, how cool is it seeing him tied with Clayton Kershaw for the major league lead in wins with 10? I know I know, wins is kind of pointless to a degree. It is and it isn't. But Jason Vargas only six runs allowed his last four outings. So it just continues to be Harry Houdini out there because his ex-fip should be 4.67. That's almost two and a half runs higher. That scares me to death that there's some negative regression coming for Vargas. And while it may not end up being four six seven, I think you and I can both agree he's probably an upper threes, three eight three nine type guy. So a two two seven means he's probably got two or three rough outings coming up over the next seven or eight. So the Royals are got to keep hitting the baseball, especially against a team like Toronto. And there are some notables against Vargas. 
Joey Bats is four for 15 with three home runs against Vargas. So three home runs and 15 ABs against Vargas for Joey. Donaldson, two for 23, has been awful against Vargas. Kendris Morales is five for 25, but two of those hits were home runs. Now the final game of the series, TBA for Toronto against Jason Hamill, who's four and six with a four eight three. ERA, Hamill, a nice outing against Boston, seven strong innings on Monday night. Has not walked a hitter, by the way, in three of his last four, which is very important for a guy that gives up his fair share of hits. If he's not putting guys on with a free pass, Hamill has shown the ability since working exclusively out of the stretch, since being more aggressive in the strike zone, the breaking pitch has a lot more depth recently. Hamill looks like a guy who possibly, knock on wood, could be that guy that Cubs fans and a Cubs media personality told me would be a world beater to the first half of the season and the exact opposite the second. Now, perhaps it's the exact opposite this year. Perhaps his awful this year was the first two months, and he'll be great the rest of the year is what I'm hoping. That'll be the exact opposite of his M.O. throughout his career. But with as Royals fans, that's what we hope for at this point. Now, against Hamill, the Blue Jays haven't had much success in 71 ABs. Just a 669 OPS. Jose Bautista, really the only guy that stuck out to me, 2 out of 17 against Hamill. His 4.83 ERA, in case you're wondering, should be 5.31. So he pretty much is what he is. So how many games in this series will the Royals get when you've got essentially an equivalent offense, although the Royals have been hotter scoring in recent days, and you've got really... I mean, I think you have to have to say this is a pretty evenly match starting pitching series. The Blue Jays have a clear edge Friday night with Hap against Junis. You have to think the Royals have a slight edge in Vargas against Estrada based on what both guys should be and are. Game three, we don't know who the starter will be for Toronto, but never a good sign when you've got a TBA against Hamill. you got to think the Royals have a – it's probably actually a toss-up as far as pitching in this series, which makes sense when you've got the back-to-back ERAs. But I like the Royals playing on this big ballpark at home. They've got a lot to play for. It's going to be nice weather, big crowds out there this weekend. I'll take the Royals to win two out of three, get right back to 500 this weekend against the Blue Jays. I will. Then the Royals are going to have to score some runs this weekend. We detailed that. June is probably not going to shut down the Toronto offense. Vargas probably has some regression coming any start now. And we know Jason Hamill is still far from out of the woods as far as us being confident in him keeping up the good streak after what we saw the first, what, couple handfuls of starts this year out of him. So, looking ahead, it should be an exciting series out at the K. You hope the Royals can get two out of three. Uh, worst case, if they win one, they still have a 500-3-3 week, which is fine. You can have a few weeks like that. You just can't have any more. We've been talking about the margin for error is gone for this team, so you just can't have any more miserable stretches the rest of the season. But we'll see what happens. One other thing I've noticed is nice to see Travis Wood throwing the ball a lot better. How much fun was it watching him in the game last night as a hitter? He hit the double play, but looked like a hitter. You know, he reminded me of the way he looks and the way he swings is rest in peace, short-time Royal Ryan Freel. Do you remember him? It was eerily similar for me watching Wood hit. I kept thinking back to poor Freel. One of the things since we've last spoken, we lost... Former Royal Hector Wagner, who I watched as a kid in Omaha and also saw one of his starts here in KC. He was only here for a cup of coffee in 90-91, but Hector Wagner passed away way too soon of cancer 
uh, about a week and a half ago at his home in New Jersey. So a moment of silence real quick here for Hector Wagner. And let's hope the Royals can go get them this weekend, and we'll be talking to you again very soon right here on your dish with Clubhouse Conversation. Thanks for listening. We'd love to hear from you, by the way. Dave O at clubhouseconversation.com, at Royals Clubhouse on the Twitter, and, of course, Clubhouse Conversation on Facebook. Have yourself a great rest of your night or day whenever you hear this, and go Royals!